What's up? I downloaded more RAM while I was at it. You downloaded more RAM? Oh yeah, from the internet. <laughs> so I'm gonna let you tell finish that part of the story, but I have a similar <laughs> story. When I was when I was younger and I had my first 486 computer, there were lots of companies that would sell you software that claimed to double your RAM, which of course I bought. <laughs> I mean, I by saying I bought, I mean I convinced my dad to buy, and they it did something because it let a game run that was not supposed to run, but I think it probably just lied about what RAM was available and just said like, yeah, mm. sure, we're running. I think later my dad ended up getting a refund out of based on some class action lawsuit against those things. But anyway, how did you download RAM? I mean, I I, I bought physical RAM. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> but you know, I bought it on the internet. Right. The heatsink was getting obnoxiously loud, and I'm pretty sure it was dying, so I just wanted to buy a new heatsink. And then while I was there, I'm like, you know what? I only have 12 gigs of RAM, and I'm feeling like that's not enough, so I should up it to 32. 12 is a weird number to have. Yeah, well, I originally had 4 gigs, two 2 gig sticks, and then I bought another 8 gigs, two 4 gig sticks, but I could have... My my motherboard has four slots for RAM in it, so... Mm -hmm. I was always taught... When I was younger, I don't. I mean, when I was younger, this is definitely the case. I don't know if it still is because I don't keep up with this stuff anymore. But that it was best to install RAM in matched pairs, which I guess you did, right? Yes. So you wouldn't do like a two and a four. I guess you just have two. You have two pairs of slots, so you you match yeah. the two and the two and the four and the four. Well, and what's most important is that the clock speed for the RAM is the same. Ah, okay, interesting. This is a this is an appropriate topic for me right now because I am as I as we record this I'm looking at my MacBook which is now five years old, the fans run loud and the battery lasts an hour and it's been saying service battery for like three years. Yeah, you're kind of screwed now. So I need a laptop. And Maybe you can get a refurbished one. You think so? This is my question. Is like here's the thing. I'm not paying for this, right? This is this sure. will be. I mean. I've gotten five years out of use of this this laptop. I think I can convince ThoughtBot to buy me another laptop or just ask, not even convince. The real hangup has been like, I don't know what to ask for. Like I've briefly considered just getting a Lenovo. Oh yeah. I mean, if, you, if you're good with going away from Mac, I, I don't, mean, I just don't know if I am. I know I could do it, but things it's like, pads are good. System 76 makes good computers too. I just don't know if I'm ready to take on like, you know, I know OS 10 has its problem. Mac OS, as I'm supposed to say now has its problems, but I know the ways around them, and I'm just not sure that I'm ready to like have to learn new ways around new problems. I mean, have so, you have you thought about just like dual booting Ubuntu for a few weeks? I guess I could try that, or whatever because Linux OS you would be running. The other thing I'm considering is, like you mentioned, is like, do I go with the 15 inch? You know, the stand. What I'm what I'm on now is a 15 inch MacBook Pro from 2013, so I would go for the 15 inch MacBook Pro from 2018, except it has the yeah, but touch those bar. are crap. It has the touch bar and the keyboard that, like, I don't mind the feeling of the keyboard. I've used, I, a client provided me one of those laptops for a brief period of time, and I used it, and, like, I hit escape, the actual escape key, a lot in Vim. Other people remap yep. that, but I, I don't. And so I never really got wholly used to, like, reaching up to wherever escape is supposed to be. Like, I never quite got used to that, and the utility of the touch bar was non-existent, and I found it to be so distracting that I turned it so that, like, it just shows function keys all the time. But I would occasionally, what I discovered is that like, while I, I don't, I'm not like a classical touch typist. I just do my own form of touch typing. And as my fingers are moving around the, around the keyboard, sometimes I turn my right hand in such a way to like maybe hit the B key or something like that. And my pinky goes up and 
if, and it hits the touch bar. It hits the touch bar, which right now it might, maybe it's hitting some of those function keys, but I'm not pressing the function right. key. But so then all of a sudden, like, you know, when I had touch bar keys up there, it would lock my screen because that's where the lock button was or something. I'd be like, what? what's happening? It's not what I want. And yeah, I mean, I'm typing wrong, I guess, but like it hasn't been an issue until now. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> on the other hand, you know, a computer does not get to tell you how you should or shouldn't be typing. Mm-hmm. So then, like, okay, maybe maybe the touch bar, you know, Apple does make a MacBook Pro without a touch bar, but it's the 13-inch version, which even if you got the 13-inch one with the touch bar has some limitation. Like, first of all, it doesn't; it's not as beefy of a machine. And yep. then second of all, it has this weird limitation, which I've seen, like, we have some clients who come to the office who have those machines, and they try and plug into a monitor, and, disco- and like, we discovered through many, probably like an hour of trial and error that not all four USB-C ports on the 13-inch MacBook Pro can drive a monitor. Only the ones on, I think, the left-hand side, not the right-hand side. Oh, that's actually not super surprising because there does need to be additional hardware capabilities besides just straight USB for the the Thunderbolt. Right, it's not surprising to people who understand that. Right, right. (laughs) To people who look at a computer and be like, what are you talking about? I have four USB-C ports and don't distinguish between the port and the protocol that is being communicated over the port or like whatever. That's extremely confusing and it's buried in some like support article on apple.com that that's an issue and so like that yeah bothers me. you'd think there'd be at least like an, a little uh, icon next to it that's like one for usb and then another one that's like usb plus thunderbolt right but they're not going to put those icons on there come on the reg, you know the 13 inch with the keys is just really is not nearly as powerful a machine as the 15 inch and it's probably fine for my needs but it's just like well if i'm gonna get one shouldn't i get one that's more powerful oh. well it still has the new keyboard right Yep. See, I can't stand the new keyboard or the new trackpad. Oh, I don't mind the new trackpad. I don't I don't know, bigger. It's fine, I guess. I don't mind that. And I actually don't mind the feel of the keyboard, but the reported I didn't have any problems in the one month I used that laptop, but the reported reliability of that keyboard is really, really bad. And I've seen a couple people in the office have issues where they're like, My I key is sticking on a laptop that's like two months old. So that's not great. But that said, I'm probably going to end up just saying, like, yeah, I mean, just get me the f- latest 15-inch MacBook Pro. <laughs> I've been holding out in hopes that, like, they would rev them soon and, like, release a 15-inch MacBook Pro with an actual keyboard or just get rid of the entire, the idea of touchpad, of the touch bar entirely. But That would require them admitting that their brilliant idea was, in fact, not so brilliant. They've done that before, you know? I mean, they kill products. I don't know if they've done that on, like, a... You know, it's, I don't know if they've done that on like design elements of a laptop before, but they've killed products that they, you know, told us were going to be the greatest, the next greatest thing. iPod. Sure, hi-fi, but hi-fi, I, don't, I don't know that they ever uh, roll out a very controversial feature and then remove it in the very next iteration. Yeah, I guess so. And then, you know, like you mentioned, the other thing is like, maybe I'll just say like, give me a 2015. So it's, it'll be two yeah. years newer. It'll have a brand new battery. Well, the hardware is not significantly different between a 2015 and a 2018. Okay. I don't keep up, so I don't I know that it would probably be plenty fast enough. Although I will say like when I was using that 2015 MacBook Pro for a month from the client, it was noticeably faster and better. Some of that maybe because it was a brand new machine without 5 years of cruft on it. And Well, in 2015 of... is when they switched to um something bridge, you know, whatever the new yeah. Intel chipset was. Haswell? Was that a Haswell? Thing? Maybe. I don't know. Anyway, yeah. Whatever the chipset was, I remember it was a big deal that they switched to it because their CPUs were getting grufty. But I don't remember if they've bumped it again between now and then, but I know it's not as dramatic of a difference. And really, the limitation, I think, in MacBook hardware these days is not – 
if you're on an i7 at least, is not the CPU. It's the amount of RAM that you have, and they still don't offer more than 16 gigs of RAM. Yeah, that was the re- that was when they first announced these MacBook Pros. That was my major concern. Is like I can't get one with 32 gigs. Yeah, Oof, that's rough. And you know the laptop I'm having now has 16 gigs, but I just you know I always envisioned a world where my neck where every new computer I bought would have double the RAM of the last computer I bought. <laughs> I mean, I don't know that there's a need to go beyond 32 right now. <laughs> Surely there will be at some point in the near future, but mm-hmm. definitely 16 is, is pushing it. So that's too bad. Anyway, I'll probably end up just saying, give me the touch bar MacBook Pro because most days I end up, I work, you know, my nine to five part of the day in clamshell mode with a keyboard and trackpad and a monitor. So I'm yeah. not actually using that anyway. And then when I'm at a client office some, or in a meeting or, you know, doing something at home on my couch, that is, is when I actually use the keyboard and you know, I think it'll probably be okay. And it'll be under warranty. Although that doesn't really help me when I need to get work done and my laptop keyboard is broken. And <laughs> it's the same reason why I haven't, you know, why I haven't had this battery issue addressed is because like to have the battery issue addressed, I have to give up the laptop, which means I have to do work in some other way, which I can do. Right. Like when I had to use that laptop for the month, I, I made sure that I was really good at setting up a computer really quickly. Cause I, I was like, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna spend the time to move on to this computer, but I know that I'm also gonna be moving on to another new computer <laughs> very soon. So I'm going to make sure I have a script to set up that to like install Homebrew and install. So I based it on the the Thoughtbot laptop script basically, and it just does stuff that I want. It's like a customized version of that. And then of course I have my dot files up in the cloud, the, yeah. G- the GitHub cloud. So you know. I always find like every time I switch to a new computer, there's always some little thing that I was sure was backed up in the cloud, but it's like slightly different and I have no clue where the hell the configuration for it even is anymore. I have my open source laptop and my work laptop and on my work laptop, Git wants me to press enter every time I'm reviewing a patch and on my <laughs> yep. open source laptop it doesn't do that. And I'm sure I could just, I could just look up the, con- the config and find it, but it's just one of those like, <laughs> it's always one of those little things like that, that like, I was certain I had that in my dot files and it would, you know, just transfer over fine. But this computer I actually did, did a clean install on like in 2014, probably. And the thing for me that I totally forgot was that I don't have access to all of the GitHub repos that I once did. So I lost all that source code, (laughs) which isn't a huge deal. But sometimes it's like, oh, I did that thing. How did I do that thing again? It's nice to see that, but eh, whatever. Yeah, so I guess I'm. Pro- uh, we'll see. We'll see where I end up. I remember back when I was excited to get a computer that had 10 gigabyte hard drive. Mm-hmm. Yep. Much less 10 gigs of RAM. Right. Uh, and so it's kind of ridiculous to go. 16 gigs is really just not enough. And so I, I just like pulled up on my MacBook. I have nothing that I would expect to be using any significant amount of memory open or running. My computer is using 14 gigabytes of RAM. So where do I see that activity monitor? Yeah, activity monitor on the memory tab. It's at the bottom. 11.88 gigs is what I'm yeah. using right now. I mean, this is what happens when every single app on your computer embeds an entire web browser. So kernel task is taking up 1.44 gigs, which yeah, I, that's who knows? What, it's 1.47 for me. That's I mean, that's the operating system doing operating. What system do you think stuff. number two is? Slack. Yes. <laughs> and then number three is Chrome. Yep. Number three for me is a the Gmail instance of Safari. So yeah. Okay. Look at that. Actually, and I have. Number two is Slack, but that's for the one for the one organization. If I go down to like number five, there's oh, another yeah, there's like there's another instance Slack of Slack. Yeah, it depends on how yeah. I guess it probably depends on how many instant how many organizations you belong to on Slack. Yeah, because I've got oh, I'm man. I've got seven open and one two three four five six seven eight instances of Slack Helper. 
I have four instances of Slack Helper. The other two are very like 70 megs or something a lot more reasonable than the gig plus that the, the two main ones are taking up. Yeah. The idea of Electron is cool and totally makes sense, especially for an MVP for a product. But yeah. for a billion dollar company like Slack, you should have the resources to make a native app that does not create an entire browser instance for every organization that you are signed into. I'm sure they absolutely do have the resources. The question is, how do you make that argument to people who have invested money in your company or if you were a public company to shareholders that that's the best use of your money? Because it doesn't seem to be hurting your growth right now, right? It can only hurt you because you will not work on other things. I mean, on the other hand, doing what's best for your customers isn't ever really a bad thing. Yeah, I mean, I guess. I mean, the, I mean, I, I would make the argument like, well, eventually people are just going to get fed up because they literally have to buy a new computer because Slack uses up too much RAM on their current computer and switch to something else, except every other option out there right now also uses Electron. And Slack's rise to ubiquitousness, I think, was driven by end users, as far as I can tell. Oh, yeah. No, I'm not. And again, I'm not right. like it makes complete sense for an MVP. Right. And so that's what I'm saying is like maybe they should consider keeping those end users. Like I would say something like I don't I don't know. I don't want I don't want to give out an example. But there's a lot of there's a lot of things that we use as users of business software like Slack is essentially that are driven by enterprise purchasing decisions. Right. Uh, and I yeah. don't think Slack's ubiquity to me seemed more driven by people who were using similar tools and found value in the way that Slack did things instead. So, right. like, to me, the major thing was like, oh, look how many integrations there are and look how easy they are to get set up. Okay, great. Got it. I understand. And that was its major selling point to me. But I think that when people were moving from things like HipChat and Campfire to this, that I was hearing excitement from end users, not. Like, oh, my company has bought this thing that we're now using. Right. I don't know. It just always frustrates me. Like, I agree with the notion that, you know, CPU time is cheaper than dev time. Mm -hmm. But that philosophy should have never leaked to stuff that runs on your users' machines. Yeah. Well, I mean, tell the entire web that, I guess. Right. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Oh, so speaking of that, should we talk about CoinHive? I don't know anything about this. Oh, you don't? No. Fill me in. Okay, so there is a cryptocurrency. I believe it's brand new. At least I hadn't heard about it until this thing started becoming uh, a, a scourge on the internet. It's called Monero. And basically the big thing that made it different is that there is a mining client written in JavaScript. Okay. So if you go to salon.com with an ad blocker turned on, mm -hmm. your browser tab will immediately start using 100% of your machine's CPU. Oh, so this is like their response to like, oh, if you want to block, you're going to block ads, then we're going to then mine, we're going to use you we're going to mine cryptocurrency. cryptocurrency. Yeah, which I don't know that I hate the idea behind it. <laughs> oh, I do. I hate the idea behind it. I certainly hate the it uses 100% of your CPU and oh. not, you know, a small reasonable fraction of your CPU. And certainly I hate how shady it, it it's being implemented. Mm -hmm. like, I don't I don't mind the idea of they're giving you shit for free. They need to find some way to monetize their content and they're going to lose the ad blocker war eventually. Of course, ad blockers are just going to start blocking this script. But right. uh, 
but yeah, and so it's 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 starting to be like everywhere. And the problem is, at least Salon, I remember it was a big kerfuffle with them, and they at least have you know the full page. Hey, you're looks like you're using an ad blocker, and at least ask you, we're gonna use your CPU if you want to keep blocking ads. And so at least they try okay, to inform yeah. you slightly, and you will kind of sort of opt in. I still don't think that the, it's sufficiently informing the user of like exactly what's going on, but. Plenty of other websites just aren't even bothering to ask your permission or inform. Does it you. do that on battery too? It uses 100% of your yeah. CPU on oh, battery. Yeah. It just you know consumes every resources it can. It's a crypto miner. That's its job. I'm trying. I'm browsing Salon.com. It's not giving me any sort of uh, notice that anything's happening, but I do have. They might. They might have stopped it. It was a few weeks ago that that it was a big kerfuffle. I also maybe since I'm using a different browser than people, maybe they're not as sophisticated at checking for ad blockers on. Yeah, so if browsers. I if I go to Salon.com, I'm in Chrome with uh, ad block plus turned on, and the very first thing I see is we notice you're using an ad blocker. Suppress ads beta block ads by allowing Salon to use your unused computing power. <laughs> yeah, it'll. <laughs> the rest of your computing power will be unused because you don't have it anymore. <laughs> yeah, it got bad enough. And I was noticing it enough on my phone because my phone would get physically hot that I actually switched web browsers. There's a browser on Android. I think it's on iOS, too, called Brave, which is just mm -hmm. a fork of Chrome, but has a built-in ad blocker and specifically also blocks this crypto miner. Mm -hmm. I was actually really surprised with how well it integrated with Android because Android's sort of tightly coupled to Chrome these days. But everywhere that it was using Chrome before now, like web views in apps open in in Brave now. And even every time you've got a web view in Android, there's the, you know, drop down menu for all of the options. And one of the options was open this in Chrome. It used to say open in browser. Then it starts saying open in Chrome. And now it actually even says open in Brave, which I was just surprised like, oh, yeah, I didn't think Google would be like willing to let people actually just swap that out. Yeah, on OS 10, there's no default system thing for that, but apps will also, will sometimes like detect if you have other browsers or other email clients or whatever installed and and give you an option of like setting your default on iOS. Yeah, is that what I said? Okay. You said uh, OS 10. Oh, I meant iOS. Yeah, so it'll some apps will try and detect that, but the built-in system stuff doesn't. Right, but I mean, WebViews was the one that really surprised me. Right. Yeah, and they also recently made a change to WebViews, which I support wholeheartedly, but man, it's kind of a bummer. Is like. So WebViews in-app used to share your cookies and things with the regular mobile Safari. Yeah. So if you were signed in to, if they didn't share, they at least persisted between WebViews and that app. I'm not entirely sure. But like, so I use the Gmail app only for my work email, right? Because I like to keep my work email separate from my personal email so that like going to my work email is a conscious, like I'm going to check my work email now. And so I use the Gmail app, I open up the Gmail app, and there'll be like a link to GitHub. And so I'll click it. And it'll open up in a web view in Saf a Safari web view inside Gmail. And it'll say like page not found, because I'm not signed into GitHub. And so even I if mean, I si even if I sign anybody in, wanted an e a link in an email to open in a web view as opposed to opening the browser. That's a good I mean, yeah, that's a good point. And, and the Gmail app will actually ask you, it'll be like, hey, every time you click on a link until you tell it not to do this anymore, it opens a little thing on the bottom of the screen that says like, do you want to open this in Safari? And Safari has like an open button next to it or Chrome and Chrome has like a get Chrome download link, you know? And so it really, and I'm like, no, open it in Safari. But what they really mean is like, we'll just use a Safari web view inside this app. <laughs> I mean, I, I'll bet they also just mean we'll use a Chrome web view. Right. I did download Chrome on the train this morning just to get around this issue. I was like, if I have Chrome, I wonder if I'll stop having to sign in to GitHub to check like a pull request from my phone. I wish every app that used WebViews had an option to never use WebViews. To always like open lot, Safari? Yeah. 
especially because like on Android, there's not even a usability argument for web views because there's the hardware back button, which takes you to the last screen you were on, which will be back to whatever app mm. you were in that, that had the link. Because like, like when I'm browsing uh, Twitter, for example, I tend to click on links a ton and oftentimes it's for articles that I don't want to read right now. And I just kind of keep open Chrome tabs as my read later list. Mm-hmm. And I always forget, oh, nope, this is going to open a web view. Have to go through like five more clicks to actually get this in an open tab. Yeah, I use a uh, Instapaper for that, but having keeping the open tabs would certainly be an option for that. I mean, it also kills multitasking. Like, let's say I'm reading an article mm-hmm. on mm-hmm. in the Twitter app in a web view, and then I get a DM and I click the notification to go to my DMs. Mm-hmm. Right, because it's the same app now, I've completely lost that state, and it won't take me back. It won't take me right. back to the uh, article I'd open. And when those things first, at least on iOS, when those things first started coming, I liked them because they were much, much faster than the app switching was sure. an, on an iPhone. But that's probably no longer the case on newer phones, and really should be a solvable problem if it is. So I think it's less. You know, I, I would rather it open in Safari probably. This is the we grumble about <laughs> computers <laughs> about episode. technology and computers and oh. how everything has become terrible. Okay, so while we're on that today, uh, Thoughtbot launched a thing on Product Hub. It's our purpose built campaign, which is like it's if you go to thoughtbot.com/resources, it's like a resource center for entrepreneurs about it has information about you know how to test a product quickly, how to get to market quickly, how to ensure quality, things like that, things that founders might be interested in. So this is on Product Hunt. And uh, I was like, oh, you know, I, I want to support ThoughtBot. I'll, I'll go over to Product Hunt and I'll create an account and I'll, and I'll upvote it, right? And so I go to upvote and it's like, yeah, you got to create an account. And I'm like, okay, great. But there's no options, of course, to create an account locally. I have to sign in with something. So the options are like Twitter, Facebook, or Angel List or something. And so I don't have any of those other two. So I was like, all right, I guess I'll sign in with Twitter. And then it immediately it tells me like the list of permissions it wants. So the list of permissions it wants aren't just like, hey, we want to be able to identify you. It's like, we want to be able to identify you. We want to be able to tweet as you. And it told me before, before I clicked the button, it said like, we're never going to send a tweet without your, your consent. And I was like, okay, right. product hunt. They're kind of, you know, they've been around. I'm, I, I trust them. And then it was like, they also want to read my timeline, see who I'm following, like all of these permissions that they want to have. And so I granted them. Because I was like, I do want to do this. And, you know, they are a legitimate company. So I granted them and I did my upvote and I looked around the site some more. And then I went back to Twitter and I revoked the rights. (laughs) And I was like, (laughs) and it's just like, I understand why they do it because they have features on the website, I imagine, that will like tweet for you or will, you know, help you look up people that you follow on Twitter to also follow them on Product Hunt or things like that, which make make a lot of sense as a feature that users will like. But I just wish there was a way for them to. I mean, there is a way they could ask when I go to use those features, they could ask for those elevated permissions. Right. But it's a terrible user experience. Right. So it's like it's a trade off. What I wish in in OAuth and and this, I don't think this is possible in OAuth. And I think it's a limitation of the framework, but maybe maybe not would be a way to say like for an app to request all the permissions it wants and to say these are the ones I require in order to use the website. Mm -hmm. And you could say like I don't want to let you read my Twitter stream and I don't want to let you see my followers. Right. I just want to let you identify me. And if you're if the website is like that's okay that's the minimal I needed it can even say like on returning and be like I noticed you didn't grant us all the permissions we requested. This means that when you go to use certain features of the site we may have to ask for more permissions. Right? And I think the majority of people would still go through that workflow and say, like, yeah, I'll just give you all the permissions because 
the majority of people don't care like I care. Right. <laughs> and it would still leave me as a user of Product Hunt because right now if I go back, I probably, I don't know, maybe I can log in still, but eventually I will not be able to log in anymore. I mean, I'm surprised Twitter at the very least has not yet added a uh, composed tweet permission. Oh, right. Well, usually when, when people are like, we will never tweet without your permission, it's because they write a tweet for you and give you a chance to edit it before it's sent. Right. I mean, there is a composed tweet permission. It's we will formulate a link to Twitter with your tweet as a URL, as a query parameter. Yeah, Yeah, this was a thing that like was really bad in Android up until recently as well, where apps have basically always had semi granular permissions, but it was always an all or nothing thing when you install the app. Mm -hmm. And in really old versions of Android, it was it was a big problem of just the permissions that an app needed were way, way too buried. And so then they eventually made it like if you tried to install an app that needed any permissions other than the default stuff, it would give you a pop-up window. And then they eventually changed it to be like make the things that you should care about much more prominent because like able to access the Internet is not a permission that is granted to apps by default. Virtually every app is going to need it. And then uh, finally, they eventually, you know, kind of copied iOS and switched it to apps can ask for permissions as they need it, mm-hmm. which I still I do think is generally the best approach I also like the iOS approach of you can ask for it when you need it. If the user says no, you cannot ask them again. Android lets you ask twice. You can't you can ask them again, but you can't present this simple like yes or no interface. You can ask them again and then if they say yes, you can open the settings for them, I think, to the page where they can like configure the setting properly, which maybe is a bit too far, but like I just like the I can see that being confusing for users who later want to opt in, but I like it from a perspective of like apps can't hound me. For this. Yeah, no, and Android Android did the same thing. It's you can ask twice. The second time it gives, you know, this app will not be able to ask for this permission again. Yeah. The idea being, yeah, you you know, like so you go to a thing that needs the camera, and for most people it'll be kind of obvious, like, oh, I just clicked a thing that's take a picture, and now it's asking me for access to my camera. Okay, but mm-hmm. then if if somebody clicks no, the app can say, hey, if you want us to, you know do a photo filter or whatever the app is trying to do. We need access to your camera. We're going to we're going to ask you again. Uh, you need to give us access <laughs> to this if you want to use this feature. Right. But then after the second time, they're completely locked out and they just get an exception if they try and ask again. I imagine Android apps must do this too, but like iOS apps have kind of gotten around this by instead of starting with the presentation of the official dialogue, yeah, they, sh- they show the screen. That's they start like, their own dialogue that's like, hey, we're about to ask you for this permission. Is it yeah. okay? And if you say no, they don't go to that second screen. They just continue to badger you. Like I have the Reddit app on iOS and it's continually like, hey, do you want to enable push notifications? And I say no. And so then I was like, okay, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to say yes, and then I'm going to say no. So I say yes, and then the iOS thing comes shows up, and then I say no, because I know then they can't ask me again. Yeah. But it, their app still presents the app space dialogue of like, hey, do you want to oh, enable? Even if they can't ask you anymore, they still present it? They still present it, and then I imagine if I say yes, it says like, go to settings and blah, blah, blah. But I've never said, I've never said yes the second time. Yeah, I mean, apps definitely do it on Android. You know, it's considered a best practice in Android to only ever do it before the second time that you ask. Only ever do... Oh, the, 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 the interstitial app, the app level like, yeah. hey, we are about to ask you about this thing. <laughs> yeah. We would like to ask you about this thing. Is it OK if we ask you? Yes. Now we are asking well, you, know, you the about idea the thing. Presumably being that if they click <laughs> no the first time, it's because for many apps, it'll be because they don't understand why you need that permission in the first place. Right. Yeah. So yeah. anyway, I don't know if that if that method of OAuthing is, would be supported, but it would be one that I, as somebody who cares about the granularity of permissions I'm granting to my Twitter account or to my Google account or whatever when I sign in with those things, would very much like it. I have basically, for all but like things that 
have obvious utility need to like do something more than identify me via that service, I basically just will not sign up for that service for the most part. Unless it's like I'm signing up for Buffer or something like that that's going to send out tweets for me on a schedule, which isn't something I'm signing up for. But like clearly if I were going to sign up for that, I have to say like, yeah, you can tweet as me. But for most things, I would just say, "Eh, forget it. I don't need to sign up for this app. And I know I'm in the minority and very few people actually care to capture that minority. It's not worth it to them, I guess. So, oh, well. I don't know. On the topic of notifications Mm -hmm. or uh, permissions, rather, we need to track down the person responsible for the web notifications API (laughs) and have a very, very long talk with them. I love this episode of our podcast. Yeah. (laughs) You know, I actually clicked, yes, you can send me notifications for the first time. For a web Google Calendar can use it now, which is like the only app that I want actually want notifications from. <laughs> Boy, why does every news why, site? Yeah, why think, do news sites want to do this? I don't. <laughs> has anybody ever clicked yes on that? Like, oh man, I really want to know what. Uh, and it's like weird news sites too. Like, you know, somebody links you to like a Mac rumor website or something like that, and you like click through, and you're right, and they're like, hey. We want to notify you about new posts. You're like, I just want to hear if there's a new MacBook Pro coming out. And then five seconds later, it's, you know, long enough that you've started reading the first paragraph. It now interrupts you with a full page ad to sign up for their mailing list. Right. (laughs) Yeah, I'm with you. I could I could go without that. Is there a uh, I'm trying to think I'm looking at the settings for Safari about like what it allows. What? Oh, I'm sure there must be a setting somewhere that's like disable this permission for all websites. Yeah, so like location being, but like, I don't think notification, oh, it is notifications, look at that. Allow websites to ask for permission to put send push notifications. Oh, I'm turning that off. Like, here's the list of things I've already, like, there's a long, there's a long list of things that I've already denied. Yeah. <laughs> Kevin MD, what, the, what is Kevin MD? I'm sorry <laughs> if Kevin MD is a listener, but. <laughs> CNN breaking news, New York Times, Tom's Hardware. Clearly, I was reading about some hardware, and they wanted to send AOL.com. I don't know why I was there. I'm embarrassed to admit it, but they did try and ask. They did try and put things. In. And location is sim- location is similar. I guess like maybe some weather websites, but I'm probably I don't know. Maybe I'll leave location on. But I mean, it's just it's hilarious too because none of the sites that you would expect to use it ever ask. Like Reddit, for example, they have direct messages. I wouldn't grant them permission to give me a notification when somebody DMs me, but like that is a place that you would expect notifications to be a thing that exists. Definitely not Tom's Hardware. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Maybe Tom's Hardware has a really passionate community, like a forum community that like is sending DMs. Who knows? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I'm assuming it's every time a new article is posted. Yeah, I'm sure it is too. What is Kevin MD? Let's see. I might have to edit this out. Who knows what Kevin MD is? Social media's leading physician voice. Oh, so I clearly went to this website when I was trying to diagnose me or my child with some with with, with some life threatening disease, which is what I what I do in my spare time. <laughs> I don't know. I'm gonna be honest. I think the internet is kind of ruined at this point. I think it's time we just call it quits, start over, new internet. Internet too. Yeah, that was a thing. It's like a university to university connection thing. I don't know. I remember oh. hearing about it in college. So I guess we'll have to go with internet three. Yeah, I think JavaScript ruined it for the JavaScript most part. was a big part of it. Yeah, it's really too bad. It was it had a nice run. It did. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I think we're going to call it now. Internet over. Sorry, guys. Yeah, Bitcoin mining and all the security things. And yeah, it's pretty bad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but if you want a web app built, you just, you know, you call us. At ThoughtBot, we make non-intrusive, horrible web applications, usually mostly server rendered. I like it. Yeah. 
Anything else? This is our gripes episode. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I was going to briefly talk about, you know, fast attributes is probably done, but oh, yeah, we've been going for 40 minutes. Let's, let's give, well, let's give the folks, you know, if, you, if you've got a brief update on fast sure. attributes, let's give them a little bit of Railsy uh, technical content here. Sure. Yeah. So fast attributes, it's been long enough that I should mention what it is for those who don't know. There are some things in Active Record that are a bunch of objects that are good, that they exist. They prevent a lot of bugs, but... They don't need to be Ruby objects because they are entirely internal to Active Record. And I wanted to remove them from Ruby's garbage collection and also do some more efficient allocation. So I took these three classes and rewrote them like line for line in Rust, pretty much. And it makes Active Record twice as fast, which I expect will mean about a 10% increase in raw throughput for a regular app. Because even you know a macro benchmark for Active Record is a, still a micro benchmark for a full uh, request response cycle. Anyway, I had to take a break from it. Number one because I just was getting a little burnt out, and number two because I had some more directly applicable work-related things I had to focus on for a couple months. But I started coming back to it recently, and it was mostly done. There's a really long tail of stuff that you have to implement in Ruby that. People just sort of expect to work, and maybe if you're inheriting from objects, like coincidentally works, like marshalling and YAML serialization. And so I've been kind of working through all of those things that are just annoying that I have to make work, but I need to make work. But what I realized, because what I wanted to do before we make the gem public is I want to try it out at Shopify and make sure that it doesn't break our app, basically. And because Shopify uses YAML serialized active record objects a lot, and just implementing YAML serialization wasn't going to be enough. I needed to make sure that it emitted identical YAML to what Rails 5.2 emits. So that way I could put it on 1% of Shopify servers and see what happens without, you know, that causing a bunch of cached objects that are not readable by the other 99% of servers. Mm -hmm. So I finally figured out a really incredibly hacky way to lie to Psyche about what class an object is. Psyche being the YAML processor. Uh, yeah, when you do YAML in Ruby since version like 1.9 or 2.0, mm -hmm. it's psych, which was the replacement for sick. But anyway, there's a method that is not intended to be used to change the class tag that it emits for an object, but it turns out that it, has, it, it happens to do that. So we're just calling that. That worked. So it, it's probably done. I still have not yet tried it on Shopify yet, at least not in production or even on CI. I need to still figure out packaging for it. And like, uh, I've run random test files locally <laughs> because that's about the extent I can do. You, you can't run the entire Shopify test suite on your local machine. I've picked some random test files. I'm like, this seems like it will test a lot of things. So, uh, and, and nothing is broken. So the reason I've stopped there for, for the moment is that CI and production are Linux. And I need to figure out how to cross compile for Linux. <laughs> and then, you know, package it so that we don't have to compile it on those machines itself. They can just, you know, gem install. But that I'm hoping to get figured out this week or early next week. And then, you know, if we put it in production and it doesn't break things, then we'll probably make the gem public shortly after that. So awesome. Hopefully by the time this episode comes out, actually. But we'll wow. see. Wow. That'll be awesome. Congratulations. Thanks. I'll be excited I mean, to see how it fares. Yeah. I'm just excited to see if the performance gains are actually as big as they've been uh, when I benchmark like scaffolded Rails apps. Mm -hmm. Congratulations. Don't congratulate me yet. Once everything's actually 10% faster, then we can do congratulations. Okay. I'll congratulate you even when you get it to work on all platforms and on CI and uh, it works on 1% of your servers. Then I'll congratulate you, right. even if it's not faster. <laughs>
You made a thing, and congratulations. Well, if it's not faster, that sort of defeats the purpose of it. Well, but you would have discovered that it doesn't work. Science. You did some science. Kind of. Yeah. Okay. Should we wrap up? Yeah, let's wrap up. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm slash 145. As always, rings and reviews on iTunes are much appreciated. If you have feedback about any of our episodes, you can tweet us at underscore bikeshed, email us at hosts at bikeshed.fm, or leave a comment on our website. Thanks for listening to Bike Shed, and we'll see you next time. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. We are experienced designers and developers who turn your idea into the right product. With local studios in Boston, San Francisco, New York, London, Austin, Raleigh, and Washington, D.C., let's build something great together.